what I've done, the reason for the two handouts, is that the, the small one is for you to take notes on. And if you like to have the text in front of you, um, then that's the bigger one. So you'll actually notice that the, the headings uh, with all the spacing on the back of the smaller, uh, smaller handouts um, are, are there also with all the Bible readings in between. Um, there's a lot of Bible today. Um, can I grab one for myself, actually? So there's a small one here. Small one there. Does anyone not have two handouts? You need a... No? Right, um, here we go. So this is the last of our um, our vision series in total, all nine vision points, three times three. Um, can anyone remember what the first major heading is? Shameless in worship. Then the second major heading, shameless in community, and this one is shameless in mission. And we've already looked at, and it's there on your um, on this side of the small handouts, um, empowered by the Spirit to be Jesus' witnesses to all kinds of people. Um, we're looking at the Great Commission and the fact that we can't fulfill the Great Commission except by the power of the Spirit. And then uh, we looked at reaching unreached nations through Streatham uh, last week, and then now we're on to motivated by the Gospel to care for those in need. And as we begin, I'd like you to discuss around your tables and there's two discussion points there. The first is, social action is about as useful as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. So I would like uh, this table, the far table at the end, and this table, you guys here, to discuss that one. Um, and then you two tables in the middle, can you discuss the second one? The kingdom is being built wherever we see things happening <coughs> that God would want to happen. Now these are two extremes of what people tend to say. And I want you to sort of sympathise with them, see what might be vaguely right about them, uh, discuss them, uh, take a couple of minutes just to discuss those in your groups and then I'll take some feedback. tables was it that had the first one? Okay, so you guys at the back, where did you agree with that statement, social action is about as useful as rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic? To what extent do you agree with it? The point was quite helpful, you made it, if you rearrange it on leaving something, it's 
Southampton to be near the lifeboats, then actually it's quite useful. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. Very good. <laughs> That's clever. Yeah. Um, the blood point is, if they don't hear the gospel, then what, whatever you do doesn't actually make it to the eternity. But that's just a very kind of, that's a bit extreme from that yeah. statement. That's it. Yeah. Not necessarily the same. Michael was saying that this is a, but sorry, this is Michael who's up on the from being missionary in Georgia, and that in the hospital where he works, where he's a social action as a nurse, if you like, um, it's the only place within the Georgia where you can legally preach the gospel because of the work they're doing there, to Muslims. Mm. So actually, yeah. what you've got is you're at your, you put yourself in a position where you can. And the whole structure of the hospital and the social care that we provide yeah. is orientated exactly to do that. Right. So we specialise in working with people who will be there a long time so we can both evangelise and disciple. Yeah, that's very helpful. That's very helpful. Okay, any other discussions around the other tables on that question? Not quite. I'd just like to say that the gospel delivered with, without grace and love yeah. is, 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 a, is a cold gospel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there is that sense, I mean, it's right to the extent that there's a sense of urgency, there's an emergency, isn't there, that we are, in the sense, in the Titanic, this life is not long, there's not long to, um, to escape, but it is an extreme view, <laughs> um, and not one, I think, that will be endorsed for the rest of the sermon. I think we'll leave. No. Now, the other, the other side, you two tables in the middle, um, what did you discuss about this, this other quote? Shall I read it again? The kingdom is being built wherever we see things happening that God would want to happen. What sort of perspective do you think they're coming from? In a sense, anything God-pleasing is building something. I mean, I'm just saying it in the same way, building uh, God's kingdom. But we were were chatting that God's kingdom is is God's people worshipping God. Yeah. In harmony, as it were, and, and that's we're in a messy, chaotic version of that at the moment. Uh, yeah. But ultimately, the new heaven and new earth—that that will be God's kingdom. Yeah. God surely wants the devil defeated. Mm. But the devil defeated arguably isn't the building of the kingdom; it's the removal of a barrier. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so in terms of motivating to meet people's needs, feeding the hungry, and so on, what did what did you guys think on that table? And we were saying that it wouldn't, so the extreme, view, the extreme view is you can't, if people don't ask homeless people only if they listen to a full explanation of the gospel at the same time, and that's what this thing is trying to say. We would be basically saying it doesn't take much, so it wouldn't take much more than just giving somebody a donut and saying we're from Stretton Central Church, and at the same time praying for natural opportunities yeah. and believing that God will deliver. The, the, the danger with this view is that the gospel becomes anything, building the kingdom becomes anything. So if you're nice to someone, if you give them a donut and so on, that becomes the gospel. Um, but actually, the kingdom language that Jesus uses is because he wants people to come under him as king. And so if Jesus isn't king of those that we feed and help, then there's an element of rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Um, Anyway, that, that's to get us going. Um, would someone like to read um, 1 John for us? Um, there's, that's there in the sheet. Sorry, I should have chosen someone He's feeling brave. Come on, Gemma. Thanks very much. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves, just as he is pure. We know that we have passed from death to life, because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth.
Thanks very much. Um, I'm going to pray again because I think we want these truths to sink, <coughs> sink deep. Um, it would help me to pray. Um, so why don't we pray again? Our Father, thank you so much that um, you speak to us with a gospel that is so wonderfully good news. And we pray that uh, as we look at these gospel truths and the implication of them, that your spirit would be doing a deep work in us so that we might do that thing that John exhorts us to do here, to see what great love you have lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And as your children, we come to you in dependence and ask that you would shape and change us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, those last two words in that reading, actions and truth, um, those two contrasted things um, should actually come together. And so what we saw in those discussion questions was on the one hand, someone saying all that matters is the truth and anything else is rearranging deck chairs. And on the other hand, we just need to do actions and whether or not that involves truth, well, it doesn't really matter. It's all the gospel. And John says, dear children, let us not love just with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And so we want to be a church that does those two things. And so um, if you turn over your little sheets, you've got the outline there. And I've divided our heading into those two parts. Motivated by the gospel, that's the truth. To care for those in need, that's the actions. And we've got to understand both and put both together all the time. Um, Otherwise, we're going to do either wrong. And... um, the first thing we're going to see is there, um, sub-point A. The gospel is the only thing that can save or change people. So, that verse we just read in 1 John 3, verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. How will you know how to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters, unless you know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we know what love is. So people who say, go out there and just love people, and if necessary, use words, are talking absolute nonsense. And I, Roger Carswell, you may know, he's a famous evangelist in this country, said when he, if he sees Francis of Assisi in the new creation, he's going to punch him. He never actually said that. It's a misquotation. Is that really a misquotation? <laughs> oh, well, he should have said it. Because <laughs> it's, it's funny. <laughs> Um, but uh, it's, it's a good point in that, obviously, he'll be reformed enough in the new creation not to want to punch Francis of Assisi. But you can't preach the gospel without words. You can't see what love is unless you see what the love of the Lord Jesus Christ is. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what love is. And that motivates us to lay down our lives for others. Or that famous verse, again, so if you're, um, if you're following through all these Bible verses, uh, are on this big sheet. So the next verse, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, and, and, and in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul is giving massive motivations um, uh, for giving, being generous with their wealth to help other Christians who are in need. And this famous central verse in that whole discourse is this, Paul says... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. We need to see what the Lord Jesus has done. He was rich beyond all imagining, and yet he became the poorest of the poor, the most despised, even unto death, so that we through his poverty might become rich. And therefore, the Macedonians that Paul was talking about there were so motivated that out of their extreme poverty welled up rich generosity, we're told. And they were were pleading with Paul for the opportunity to give to their Christian brothers and sisters who were starving across the other side of Asia Minor. And the danger is that we might forget the gospel. It's a bit hot in here. Does someone want to end it? Can you open the back door? I do need a key. <laughs> windows, you can open them. Yeah, window open. 
I want to know if, if you're going to sleep because I'm boring or because it's just too hot. <laughs> um, so if we forget the gospel, then we'll likely veer in one of two directions. Um, either we will lose our compassion and generosity and we'll say comments like social action is like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic because we've sort of lost the ability to really care about people and the gospel is just a formula to put in your back pocket to save you for eternity. And we'll, we'll forget the extraordinary love of Christ who, who became for, poor for us and it'll make us um, religiously sort of judgmental and self-sufficient. We'll think, well, well I'm okay and so why aren't they? You know, I've worked to get to this point. Why can't they? You know, I'll tell them how to be good, but if they can't do it, well, I can. Or the, the other extreme, if we forget the gospel, is that we'll be overburdened with a sense of duty or guilt. Um, I don't know if you've seen that uh, episode in Schindler's List. Everyone's seen Schindler's List. Um, do you know at the end where he's, um, I think the best thing is probably to shut the door, isn't it? <laughs> then we won't know that they're screaming. Um, uh, Lucy, do you want to shut the door? Thank you. At the end of Schindler's List, where he's done that amazing stuff of bribing the, um, the Nazis in order to get Jews to come and work in his factory so he can save their lives. And he saved hundreds of lives. Um, but at the end, as he's saying goodbye, because the Allies are coming in and they're going to um, uh, they're going to prosecute all Nazi sympathisers, um, Schindler is sort of running for his life, and he's there in front of his Jewish factory workers, and he's looking at his watch, and he thinks, if only I'd sold this watch, I could have bribed and got one more Jew. And then he looks at his rings, and he thinks, I could have sold this. And then he says, Oh, I've wasted so much money. And if I'd sold my car, then I could have got five more lives. If only, I'd, if only I'd used my money better, if only I'd done more, if only I'd done more. And he breaks down and cries and they try and comfort him, but he's so racked with the guilt of thinking he hasn't done enough. And if you forget the gospel, that's what will happen. We'll go out there and we'll try and do good. And we'll try and do good because we think somehow God will accept us, we'll be acceptable, we'll make it, we'll be proven as a good person but we're never good enough because we are guilty sinners and actually before a holy God even if we've done all those wonderful things we deserve nothing but his wrath but the gospel says you are forgiven in Christ you are set free he became poor for your sake so that you through his poverty might become rich you're rich beyond all imagining you're a child of God your security lies in him And so do wonderful things, but do it out of grace, not out of works and duty. Um, We were talking about this the other night, weren't we? That feeling of you want to serve a friend. And what were we saying? That feeling of, you know, I've been uh, given the opportunity to serve them, but because I failed or something like that, then um, actually what's my worth? You know, what value do I have? And actually we need to find our value in Christ and then we can keep on serving. You see, if we are overburdened with duty and guilt, if we forget the gospel, then we are the saviour of our lives and our goodness is what gets us to God. And then we realise we're not a very good saviour and so we're burdened with duty and guilt instead of living in the joy and power of the Spirit as a saved sinner. And so, the next sub-point there is beware the pressure to lose the priority and clarity of the gospel. And there will always be that pressure. And a lot of that pressure is due to the very simple fact that you can see when someone's in physical need, can't you? But you can't so easily see that they're lost for all eternity. That's not as visible, it's not as tangible. And also, the world will say to us, why do you go on about converting people, you're so judgmental and so on? Why can't you just be nice to people? And we'll feel that pressure and we want that approval from the world of of doing good actions. Um, And so we'll go soft on the gospel. And Paul was very aware of that. And there are other pressures. There are religious pressures. And that's the one that he faced in Galatians. So the next one on your big sheets is um, uh, Galatians 1. 
And Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we've already said, so now I say it again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Literally, to hell with them. Literally, to hell with them. Because if we soften the gospel, if we say, oh, we don't really need to tell people about the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, then not only are we perhaps rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, actually we're just getting people and throwing them off the side without a lifeboat. The most loving thing we can do is tell people that the Lord Jesus who was rich became poor for them so that they through his poverty might become rich. Because actually, the only thing that can save and change people is the gospel. As we've looked at before, all religion does is it makes you either judgmental on the one hand or insecure on the other. Because you're the saviour of your life. And only if you have a saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ can you be free from being judgmental. Can you be loving towards others, humble towards others, and totally secure at the same time. And I've put a few little comments in the next section of the big sheets um, with the title, If you get the gospel, it will change you and your attitude to those in need. And we see that so on so many occasions as in Jesus' ministry in the gospel accounts. And there's that famous one in Luke chapter 19 of Zacchaeus, who was the tax collector, a cruel, money-grabbing, selfish man, who Jesus came to him and ate with him, and showed him that he was forgiven and accepted, and welcomed back into God's kingdom. And Zacchaeus said, See, Lord, here I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I'll repay them four times. And he's a changed man. And Jesus looked at him and said, verse 9 of Luke chapter 19, Today salvation has come to this house, because this, too, this man too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. I can tell this guy has been changed by the gospel. I can tell this guy has put his trust in me because he wants to be generous with all that he's been given. And if we really see how much we've been forgiven, we will be so forgiving towards others. And that's there in Matthew 18, the end of Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant, where Jesus compares... Uh, the debt that we have been forgiven with the kind of debts, even the very worst debts that we might need to forgive others. And the scale is infinite billions versus about, sort of, I think, £8,000 in today's money. So what Jesus is saying is it's not an insignificant thing that we have to forgive others. You know, I'm assuming most of us here would feel the loss of £8,000. But in comparison to the billions, the eternal debt that we have been forgiven. Well, it frees us to forgive and to forgive and to serve those who are in need. Um, And I think that's why, one of the reasons why, um, as well as um, the Good Samaritan, why often the the good works that churches seek to do to the poor and needy are called mercy ministries. And um, then Matthew... um, Uh, Matthew chapter 25, the sheep and the goats. That very sort of stark and frightening parable that Jesus tells. Where on the last day he says he will come and he'll divide the good and the evil like sheep and goats. And he'll say to the sheep, "Um, because you fed me and you clothed me and you visited me in prison. So I'll say to you, you go into eternal dwellings. And they said, but when did we see you, Lord, and, and do all these things for you? He said, whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. The mark of a saved sinner is that we will want to serve others, and especially Jesus' brothers and sisters. And the frightening thing is he looks at the goats and, and he says, you didn't do all this 
And they said, when didn't we do all this for you? And he says, whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me. And so he's saying that if you really get the gospel, it will change your whole attitude to money and wealth. And your sort of desire for that bigger house and, and the bigger car and for the, the comfort and so on will go way, 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 way down. And your desire to see others built up and, and fed and encouraged and looked after and, and your compassion on others will go way, 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 way up. If you get the gospel, it will change your attitude to those in need. And so in James chapter 2... James says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. It's very striking. We are justified... By trusting in the saving death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we understand that he who was rich became poor for our sake so that we through his poverty might become rich, then it will change us. And if it doesn't change us, we know we haven't understood the gospel. Justification leads to justice. And it's very, very striking that the word for righteousness and justice is the same thing in the Greek and in the Hebrew as well. Um, and so when we're called upon to be righteous in Christ, that's the one thing that we need in Romans. We need to be righteous in Christ. We need to be justified. Then our attitude will be transformed if we are righteous and we will be <coughs> justice givers. We will look out towards others. Justification leads to justice. And so we come on to our second main heading. To care for those in need. Motivated by the gospel. Justification in Christ alone. Leads to justice. To care for those in need. And the first thing we need to see. And all of the key texts in the Bible. Really sort of focus first and foremost on this. Is that our first responsibility. Is to our brothers and sisters. And immediately it's within the local church. Um, but then... Uh, also to Christians beyond. So to um, save me doing all the talking, does someone want to read um, Acts chapter 4? It's there on the, um, on the big sheets under that heading. Thank you. So striking, isn't it? Verse 34. There was no needy person among them. And that should be said of Stratton Central Church. There is no needy person among us. Not because professionals are being paid to look after everyone's needs in the church, but that we as a church are all outward looking towards each other. Um, And um, so primarily, we are looking at looking after our brothers and sisters within the church family. But also there's a sense in which that obligation goes beyond the church family. And so that famous passage in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul was collecting, yes, for brothers and sisters in Christ, but they were in Jerusalem and the Macedonians were the other side of Turkey. Um, And so um, we want to look beyond our immediate church setting um, and where we hear about needs, we should be willing to give. Uh, first and foremost to, to Christians. And actually, most of the key passages in the Old Testament and the New Testament that are quoted by those who emphasise our need to be generous in, in justice and giving and mercy towards the poor, um, they are all first and foremost about um, the family of God. But um, Paul makes it very clear that our vision must go beyond that. And so there we have it in Galatians 6, verse 10. Paul says, therefore, as we have opportunity, 
Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. That's um, a summary, really, of the Christian responsibility. Do good to all people, but especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So our, our, our focus starts in our immediate church family. Um, and we should be thinking, each one of us, every week, oh, who's not here, and why, not, why aren't they here, and how can I serve their needs, and how can I look after them, and, you know, actually, is there something I could sell so that they could have? Um, and then look beyond that um, to, to other believers in, um, uh, in, in churches around the country and around the world, uh, but then to all people as well. It's interesting that um, it's got to be focused on the immediate church family because uh, Galatians 6, 1-10 is all about carrying each other's burdens, knowing each other intimately, so intimately that, that you could spot me caught in a particular sin and restore me gently. Um, you wouldn't be able to do that for someone on the other side of the world. You, you wouldn't know what particular sins they were struggling with. Um, but um, but the, the, the vision must go beyond that. And so point B there. We must reach out to unbelievers in needs too. And those two things are not unconnected, actually. You see, if we love and serve each other, a watching world will notice. So we've talked a lot about how we want to be um, a living sacrifice corporately. So we, as many bodies, are one living sacrifice, aren't we? Um, And... um, uh, and a watching world will notice. So actually I've put on the sheet there a quote from Exodus 19 where God is about to give the law and he's saying this wonderful law of how you must live in relationship with me. Uh, he says this, uh, verse 5 of Exodus 19. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And um, the point here, and then again repeated in Deuteronomy, is that as a, a watching world looks in, this whole kingdom, all the people, not just the priests in the tabernacle, are a kingdom of priests. They are ministers to a watching world. And people look in and see, gosh, they've got transformed lives. And they even serve us as well. Their God must be amazing. And this language of being a kingdom of priests is picked up, and we've seen it many times. We've looked at 1 Peter chapter 2. And so, does someone want to read um, that there on the big sheets? Carl? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a pe- the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Thank you so much. Do you see that? That same mandate that was given to the Old Testament Jews, uh, the Israelites, who actually failed to live up to God's law and were, were the opposite of a picture of a transformed kingdom because they didn't have the, the, the transforming gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, is then picked up and given to the church family. And we are to be that royal priesthood, the kingdom of priests, a holy nation, God's special <coughs> possession. So that as people look on, verse 12, we live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now this actually happens, and there are some wonderful examples in um, ancient history of this happening in the, in the first few centuries of the church. Um, as I was preparing for this, I came across um, a letter from Emperor Julius, who was there in about 360 AD, writing to his pagan high priest and saying how awful it was that these atheists, as he called them, meaning Christians, and the reason he called them atheists is because they said that all the Greek gods didn't exist. The Greek and Roman gods didn't exist. Um, and so he called them atheists because they denied the existence of his gods. Um, he, he dismisses them as atheists and he says they're using trickery 
by serving each other and not only their own poor, but ours as well. And so they're winning loads of converts that way. <laughs> and so he, he writes to his high priest and he says, you've got to uh, put penalties on all your individual underpriests in your pagan temples if they don't give out nice things and here's some money so that you can give stuff to people to try and win them back to paganism. But there was no grace there. It was all law and of course it doesn't work. But you see, these were transformed people who were not only serving each other and everyone looked on and thought, wow, they're an amazing transformed community. But as others looked on, they served them as well. And people were drawn. And they were actually that kingdom of priests. You see, a priest is, is an intercessor between man and God. Now, in terms of the ultimate salvation, we only have one high priest, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can intercede for us because he died and rose again for us. But we, as his redeemed people, as his body, as his kingdom, are priests to a watching world. We are the intermediaries. And so as they look on and they think, how do I get to God? Ah, through those guys. Because what did Jesus say? By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And we know that it goes beyond the loving one another because of... uh, the famous parable, the Good Samaritan, um, where Jesus makes it very clear that loving your neighbour can't be defined narrowly and conveniently. So the guy comes to him and says, who is my neighbour? And he uses the most extreme example of two people who hate each other, Jew and Samaritan, and the Samaritan has mercy on the Jew and looks after him, even at huge personal cost and risk to himself. And so Jesus is saying, go and do likewise. We must have that attitude. It's not just to be kept within but it comes through the family of believers. Um, or Matthew 5, that's there on your sheets. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. That was the sort of watchword of the day. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Do you see that connection again? You know, the way that people will know that we are children of our Father in heaven is that we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Um, so we're looking at... Um, uh, and, and we're children of our Father in heaven who causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. God is indiscriminate in his common grace and we must reflect that common grace. So we must be good to all, always seeking to bring the gospel uh, but not withholding good things just because people don't believe the gospel yet. And I'm struck here by the connection with what we looked at last week in Luke chapter 14. So last week we were looking at that um, heading of reaching uh, unreached people through Streatham. And John took us to Luke 14 in the parable of the great banquet and sending out the invitations. Well, just before that, Carl very helpfully in our study on um, Tuesday night just got us to read a few verses before what we looked at last week um, in Luke 14. Does someone else want to read that for us? And we have to. Then Jesus said to his host... When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers, or your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbours. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Thank you. And then um, Jesus goes on. Uh, Actually, there's more, isn't there? Yeah, keep going, keep going. The servant came back and reported these excuses to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Then the master told his servant, Go out to the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Thank you so much. So do you see that connection there? Jesus is saying, you know, think about inviting those to dinner who can't invite you back. And that connection has to the great banquet, because that is the heart of your heavenly father, who sends people out into the world, the world that ignores him, and gets them to compel them to come in and enjoy the great banquet with him. And so this desire to, to serve the poor is a missionary desire. Um, and I saw that more and more in, um, in Galatians chapter 2. So um, Paul in Galatians chapter 2 is having his apostleship verified and confirmed by the other apostles. So um, you may know the, the history of um, how Paul was converted. He was converted on the road to Damascus. 
and um, had an encounter with the risen reigning Lord Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus appointed him to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And then Paul um, studied for a while and then went out preaching the gospel, but didn't spend much time with the apostles. And this was a key moment where he came together with Peter and James and uh, the other apostles. And, um, and he was having his apostleship verified. It was absolutely a key moment in the church. If they had two different gospels, then there would be nothing. We wouldn't have a Bible today. Um, and, uh, uh, and these other apostles uh, confirm his mission. As, as an apostle. Does someone want to read this passage to us? Um, Andy? Thanks. Galatians 2. Galatians 2. They recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship and they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I've been eager to do all along. Thank you so much. Okay, so this is Paul having his apostleship verified. They recognise, yes, he's preaching the same gospel. This is the same risen Lord Jesus Christ that has appeared to Paul. Um, This is absolutely valid. And he should go and continue his mission to the Gentiles. Verse 10, all that they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. Mission, serving the poor, are those two different things? No, they're one thing in Paul's mind. They're one thing. And I saw this just so clearly um, as I was preparing and listening to a really helpful sermon by John Piper, as you might have guessed. He's quite helpful. Um, and um, uh, I've got a slide on here. Is it going to be the next one? Yeah, here we are. Okay, so this is the 1040 window, it's called. I don't know if, you, if you've ever heard missionaries trying to appeal to churches to get you excited about mission. They'll often show this one. Because this, this window of uh, 10 degrees north by 40 degrees north is, um, uh, is the area of the world where the most unreached people live. 95% of the least reached people in the world live within that window. And um, within that same window, 85% of the poorest of the poor live. So the most unreached people on our planet are also the poorest people on our planet. So a desire to preach the gospel through Streatham to the nations, is not just a desire to tell people the truth and not worry about rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. No, it is to have a compassionate heart for the poor. So the poorest people live in the same area as the most unreached people. Does that not make you want to pray for those nations? Does that not make you want to reach out to them? You see, the very thing that Paul was always eager to do was to minister to the poor because he knew that they were also the spiritually poor as well. In other words, globally speaking, the most unreached peoples and the poorest peoples are almost the same, in the words of John Piper. So, to conclude, you need to remember that you personally can't bring heaven on earth. This isn't your mission on your own. This isn't a guilt trip. But motivated by the gospel, we can together show Christ to the world. So Jesus in John 13, love one another as I have loved you. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So much so that John then, in John chapter 4, at uh, the reading that Matt and Gemma had at their wedding, says, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God's love is made complete in us. Extraordinary. People can see their God in the body of Christ, the transformed people, as people look on us. So we must do this in community. There's a danger of kind of some of us getting a heart for things. And a few of us, Chris, we were talking about this. You know, Chris does some wonderful things among um, the... Uh, um, elderly people and was going to be there today weren't you, helping out in an old people's home and I said no I'd love you to be here because I want you to convince us all to work with you and pray with you and think about how we might together um, perhaps reach out to 
the elderly in Stratton, where there's huge need, isn't there? Um, or um, also you've been helping out in the, the prison ministry with um, uh, Christian prison resources, and I might talk about that in a, in a moment when we break out. Um, but we must do this in community. You know, Antoinette, I'd love you to be telling us more about what you're doing with um, uh, International Justice Mission and, and so on. Um, we, um, uh, we must be, be doing this in community because it's through us loving one another that we're able to then reach out to the world, not each doing our own thing. Together, motivated by the gospel, caring for those in need. And so you've got um, on, the, on that little sheet a summary. Um, it may need a little bit of tweaking and, and so on, but in that box at the bottom of the, the front page under Shameless Mission, um, this is kind of a condensed version of what we're trying to do within our vision point. We want to give a percentage of our income to support gospel-centred social transformation projects, and we want to proactively care for the needs of those in our church and known to our community. So we want to be those who are giving in so that we can give out uh, both of our money and of our personal time and resources. Why don't we take a moment to, um, uh, to pray around tables of wisdom in that. And then I'd like us to come back together actually um, in the last five or ten minutes and think about practical ways that we could be doing this more. Let's pray around tables. Um, it'd be lovely for us over, over tea to be chatting more about how we might um, apply this properly and there are two particular things I wanted us to look at um, that gives you absolutely no idea of what I'm about to say um, so don't, don't look at that um, the, the first thing and one of the things that John and I have um, as long as you guys are up for it um, decided that we'd like to give um, some of our money towards as a church is um, a charity called Christian Prison Resourcing CPR. Um, see what they've done there. And um, uh, their, their thing is offering life support to, to prisoners. And um, I just think they so wonderfully exemplify what I've, trying to, I've been trying to talk about, um, which is they teach the Bible ex- in expository ways in Bible studies in the prisons. So they just work through a text so that the prisoners can read for themselves and see what it says in front of them. Because so many gurus go into the prisons and tell the prisoners anything, and all the way from sort of well Muslims to uh, prosperity gospel, and confuse them by giving tidbits here and there. And they just they just teach them how to read for themselves. They teach them comprehension skills, uh, but in doing so, they're teaching them the gospel. Mm-hmm. And um, and then they mentor them and dis- uh, disciple them in the prisons and try and hook them up with local churches so when they come out, they're then back into a real community rather than back into a ghetto and re-offending. Um, and Dave's going to come and talk about that. David, David Fortune is going to come on Wednesday to our prayer meeting, um, which, uh, in case I forget to say, is at Carl and Penny's on Wednesday. Um, we had, I'd really hoped it was going to be at our house. <laughs> then we wouldn't have needed to get a babysitter, but it's, it's not quite ready. Um, so... Um, yeah, sorry, that's a tiny aside. So Christian prison resourcing is something that we'll think about on Wednesday of giving our money to. This other thing I want to show you is just a prompt to an idea. It's something that's going on in Chicago. There's this lady called Danita Travis who's um, set up a charity called By the Hand. And let me just let her introduce herself very briefly in this one-minute clip. She's at um, the Gospel Coalition and they're talking about social transformation. So again, my name is Dinah Travis, and my background is that of a businesswoman and an entrepreneur. Before starting by the Hand Club, I was founder and president of an advertising agency here in Chicago for 18 years. And in the late 1990s, God made it clear to me that he wanted me to use those business skills and those entrepreneurial skills to start by the Hand Club for kids. And I had the... um, Awesome privilege to do that. Ten years ago, we're celebrating our 10th anniversary. Started by the Hand Club for Kids. It's a Christ-centered after-school program serving today 767 kids in four of Chicago's most under-resourced neighborhoods. What's, um, I think, um, different about by the Hand Club is we only serve kids who Chicago public school principals have recommended to us is kids who are failing in schools. So in order to come to buy the hand club, the kids have to be testing in the lowest quartile 
meaning they're 20 times more likely to drop out of school. And yet today, 89% um, of our kids graduate from high school, 96% go on to college, three-quarters are testing in those upper quartiles in reading, and it's just an awesome blessing to be a part of that. Praise God. So um, that's encouraging in itself. She, she talks a little bit later about the thing that prompted her, um, which excited me in the connection to one of our um, sort of key verses in terms of being shameless in Christ, is she was reading and reflecting on John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And she was looking at all these street kids and thinking, they're trying to get fullness of life and they don't know where to find it. But we know where to find it. It's here. It's in Jesus. And so somehow we need to reach out to these kids and tell them about Jesus. And she did it through this program. And let me just show you another clip, which is of By the Hand. This is three minutes long. <coughs> this is on their website. Maybe there's an entrepreneur here who will get prompted as well. And um, one little thing I wanted to say um, is the last verse on your big sheets. Um, I think this is something I'm very conscious of as I've talked to um, a number of guys who are also planting churches and um, uh, setting up and so on and, and, and what they've got. Uh, we have been given so, so much. Um, there's a wonderful maturity among you guys. Um, you are buying into this uh, reality that you are the ministers of the church and you are really wonderful and gifted people. And the Lord has resourced us financially beyond any co-mission church plant and I think any other church plant I've heard of to the point that we are financially self-sufficient before we launch. And it's just extraordinary. And Jesus says, Luke 12, verse 48, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. And we must see that motivated by the gospel. That, that must not become a burden or a pressure. Uh, Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, and as Jim was saying in a Bible study the other day, it's because you're walking with. So, you know, you might be a weak, pathetic ox, but Jesus is the massive ox next to you, yoked with you. And so that's why his burden is so great, because depending on him, we just can plow that field. But we have been given so much, so, so much. And so let's be chatting over tea as to how we might use it for him. Why don't one or two pray out loud as we close? Oh, Father, we praise you for that glorious gospel, that the Lord Jesus, though he was rich for our sakes, became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Thank you that he, the righteous one, became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you for that liberating freedom. Thank you that we have it all now in Christ. Thank you that we don't need to prove ourselves, that we don't need to feel guilty and beat ourselves over the head for what we haven't done, because all that is paid for, and we're free and liberated in Christ. And we pray with that wonderful burden lifted from our shoulders, with that freedom, with that sense of joy of a beggar being raised to the king's, the king's palace, that we would go out with a confident prayerfulness <coughs> that you might work in us and through us to reach out to those who are physically and spiritually poor, mm -hmm. that they might be transformed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name. Amen. Amen. Amen.